Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, order a copy of Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. So we have a really great show for you today, a very spicy topic and a very packed panel. Today we have myself, my co-host, Abby Cardis. Hello. And Jules Gill-Peterson. Hello. And the three of us are joined by returning guests and fan faves, Marquezel, Mikey, Mercedes, and Monica Creedy. Mikey is a writer, creator, and doctoral student from the Bronx, New York. As a presidential fellow at the Brown University School of Public Health, she works at the intersection of critical public health studies, fat studies, and scholarship on racism, examining how racism, anti-blackness, and fat phobia have shaped healthcare, research, and public health. Mikey is also the co-host of the podcast, Unsolicited Fatties Talk Back. Mikey, welcome back to the death panel. Thank you so much for inviting me back. I'm so excited. So, so, so excited and so happy to be here. Hell yes. And Monica, we're so happy to have you back too. Monica is a public health communicator and strategist who studies anti-fatness in healthcare and public health and advocates for addressing the structural determinants of health through widespread social change. She provides training and technical assistance to help clinicians, policymakers, and researchers understand the flaws of weight-centric health systems and imagine fat-positive healthcare and health policy. Monica, welcome back to the Death Panel. Thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute dream to be here. I am so grateful that everyone's schedules align to make all five of us being on this recording possible today because we are talking about a topic that you know, we sort of need everyone's combined expertise to address, which is Ozempic. If you're unfamiliar with what Ozempic is, which I have a hard time imagining that this is the case and that there is a person (laughs) out there who does not know what Ozempic is. But, you know, just in case, Ozempic is a type 2 diabetes drug made by the Danish pharmaceutical company Novo Nordisk. It's part of a class of drugs that has recently become a blockbuster market called GLP-1 agonists. Ozempic is basically just a weekly injectable that works by mimicking the action of a hormone called glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1, which helps to regulate blood sugar levels. So prescribing Ozempic off-label and others like it, such as Munjaro or generic semaglutide, is the latest trendy pharmaceutical product being used for weight loss. And the U.S. has also just approved something called Wagovi, which is a double dose of Ozempic just for weight loss, not for type 2 diabetes used off-label, which is slated to also soon be available in the United Kingdom from the NHS. And uh, Novo Nordisk is... (laughs) Operating profits are up 58% since 2017, which is the year that Ozempic was introduced. And in the last year, in 2022, their diabetes care sales, which includes Ozempic, 
jumped by 56%, and their so-called obesity care sales, which includes Wagovi, shot up 101%. So that's just to give you an idea of some of the scale of the demand shift over the last year. And this is not just about this one drug or these drugs. As we discussed the last time that we had Mikey and Monica on, we're living through a really important cultural moment for the medicalization of fatness and the many varied and terrible takes on Ozempic come from both positions for and against Ozempic. And what is clearly ultimately a kind of growing trend towards, quote unquote, treating obesity like a disease. And in that framework, Ozempic features as a central component of what some are calling the, quote unquote, obesity revolution. And as I've been prepping for this episode, I've been thinking a lot about something that Jules said in an interview that she and I did for the new inquiry last year before she joined the panel, which was about, you know, resisting attacks on trans life through an embrace of a radical material politics that unequivocally supports trans life. And Jules, you said, quote, in our current moment, the loudest speaking positions are egregious and excruciating and complementary in their antagonism. And that is very much also describing what we're going to get into today. Every side of this argument is a slightly different representation of anti-fatness. Mm. So we're going to talk about the different arguments for and against Ozempic to really give us a chance to talk about the broader context here, which is characterized by this complementary antagonism towards fat people. The conversation about medicalization and fatness is not about the medicalization of fatness itself, but about how and why we should innately think of fatness through a medical lens, the kind of right of the medical community to this group of people as a patient group, and also how what American culture talks about through a medical lens becomes then a problem where the intervention is pharmaceutical. Again, both for and against are excruciating in their anti-fatness, and this is the main theme here. From all angles right now, you know, there are a couple of things happening to cement the medicalization of fatness as a new dominant framework, and it's happening kind of across the board here in what we're going to cover today. But just maybe to start us off, in terms of responding immediately to the kind of Ozempic frame and the idea of being like, okay, I have to really dig in on this. Mikey and Monica, first, do you mind talking about your <laughs> number one frustrations in a lot of the approaches to this topic? Yes, gladly. I'm really glad that we started actually with Jules's quote about the attacks on trans people because I see just so many similarities. To, to me, my biggest frustration, right, is this frame of like, we're trying to eliminate a condition, not a group of people. Mm -hmm. That framing is a problem. And so it's actually a short answer. That's my biggest beef with the whole thing. Um, yeah. And if you start there, then every argument on every side falls apart because you see that materially speaking, right, they're all promoting the same thing, which is fat people need to try to not be fat at all costs. And they're just arguing about dollars and cents. So Mikey, what is your number one frustration with, with sort of how this topic is approached right now? So I've been following this since like early 2021. Yeah. And with that brings its own kind of frustration because I made a lot of predictions about 
the form of this forced dichotomy of like, oh, you are either against these medications. You don't believe that that quote unquote obese people should have a medical intervention to do this. That means that you give in to all these ideas about like how people should be working off weight or whatever. It's like this very much like forced health equity argument, which we'll definitely get into. I know. Um, but it's so transparent and obvious, you know, it's a forced dichotomy that if you are paying even a second of attention to the trajectory of conversations about medicalized fatness in the past few years, like we've always been moving towards this place, especially with the, and I hate to call it like the rise of body positivity, but like (laughs) more like the commercialization and mainstreaming of body body positivity in like this Mm, very flat way. Um, with that happening, like it was just sort of natural to predict that weight loss companies and pharmaceutical and like just the weight loss industry and it's, you know, meaning pharma government, blah, blah, blah. Like all of those would have to find a way to evolve Mm -hmm. with this like new discussion about feeling good in your body, quote unquote new. And I like, obviously we all know the problem with that, but like, (laughs) because it's not new, but, um, (laughs) very flattened and like whitewashed way of thinking about what it means to accept the way you look in the now but they're they're using it to sort of force fit pre-existing ideas about what is bad and what is good and what we should be working towards and yeah so it's just like i saw all of this coming and so like you have this forced dichotomy where it's like what you don't believe that obese people should have a have a pharmaceutical means of of losing weight and getting healthy how could you believe that versus <laughs> like <laughs> which is so weird it's so it's so weird. weird because it doesn't it doesn't make sense on either point like I, it doesn't even work from a material lens because like you're not actually giving people anything you're just reselling them their oppression as their liberation yes oh my god yes mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so like it's just it's just very transparent and also like the commodification of black women in this specific new phase of marketing mm-hmm. is so transparent to like the whole thing with Queen Latifah. And I remember um, I, I can't remember if I brought this up uh, during our last discussion, but there was a, a woman who like went viral on TikTok for eating a chicken salad and then all of a sudden she has a partnership with Weight Watchers, a fat oh black God. woman who like, and then also we have non-fat black women like Fatima Cody Stanford, who like, she pops up in every fucking thing <laughs> that I see coming out now <laughs> She'll about be weight stigma. And she, in this conversation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like she's been popping up in fucking everything for the past two years. And so it's all just gotten very formulaic at this point. And it's just such a transparently forced binary between caring about fat people, caring, no, not caring about fat people, specifically caring about quote unquote obese people. And Mm -hmm. if you don't support this medication, if you don't like believe that this pharmaceutical intervention should exist, then you're either like giving into these ideas that you know, obese people should suffer to lose weight or you're just like anti-science and anti-health. It's like, it's very weak, which, you know, like there is definitely a part of me that is very anti-health and like, I'm sure everybody here (laughs) is on that same, (laughs) in that same place. 
but it's this very different um connotation that goes along with like well you don't care like you don't understand like you were not you were not evolved enough to understand like why this is needed and blah 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 and so it's just it's boring it's just boring that's <laughs> the thing that irritates me it's boring and predictable mm. and now we're at this phase where like everybody wants to fucking talk about ozempic and wegovy and all this shit and i'm just like i wrote about this a year and a half ago mm. and now <laughs> You are all just saying the things that I thought you were going to say because you're boring and predictable. Mm -hmm. Well said. That's where we're at. Well, I just, it it makes me, I really appreciate having this as the lead in though, because putting in a bigger context, sort of this moment and the kind of marketization, right? The the appropriation um, of a really superficial aesthetic or like vibes version or just like talking points version of equity um, mm. Also, I think helps us see the the kind of I mean, some of this, you know, always feels very old to me. It's like we're hey, we're still doing eugenics because that's what like modern industrial medicine is about. Um, you know, I don't know. I just as you were talking, I, I had like I had a pair of numbers in my head from from the absolute just bizarrely thick stack of media coverage of of this drug. Um, but on the one hand, you know, this sort of really bizarre push to, you know, include weight loss medications under Medicare and sort of make that a kind of, you know, public charge um, Mm -hmm. is part of this sort of privatization, you know, effort on the one hand. So it's this kind of weird arithmetic that feels really revelatory of how anti-fatness is a part of, you know, just eugenic calculations in general, this idea that the U.S., you know, or the the state spends too much money, um, you know, mm-hmm. providing healthcare mm-hmm. to fat people, and so this class of drugs, among other things, promises to reduce right the sort of public investment in in people's um, healthcare, and then that's sort of attached to me. So there's this like. trillion number thrown around by people Mm -hmm. pushing to to reform Medicare statutorily. But then that that's also tied to the kind of multinational corporate fantasy arithmetic here where Pfizer, Pfizer's fantasy is $100 billion a year of profit from Mm. this class of drugs, right, for moving from um, you know, providing them primarily to people treating diabetes to prescribing them, you know, um, in order to target weight. And it just seems like just that shift there, right? This like fantasy of reducing, you know, public expenditure in order to precisely line the pockets of yes. private, you know, <laughs> drug companies just feels so like... Right. And like, this is the other thing is that when we talk about the cost of fat people's care, is that often what we are talking about is the cost of long term medical neglect and denial of care, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. fat people have to doctor shop in order to find a doctor who will run like a test, Mm -hmm. right? Or like, like the iatrogenesis of mm-hmm. having a weight loss surgery and then having a bunch of complications where before you were maybe like in the pre-diabetic range, but stable and not really needing that much health care, you know, like, mm-hmm. and like, these are all things that happen and then get lumped in under fat people are so expensive. Fat people are disproportionately using all the health care. And it's like, actually, no, actually, actually we are just no. trying to access like one half of what most, you know, then people are getting understanding, of course, that like, 
discrimination is happening along every axis. So like really only normatively embodied white men are getting like the full standard of care, <laughs> right? It's and, so- like, we just have to name that. We just have to name up front that there is mm-hmm. a standard of care for normatively embodied, thin, able white men and they get one kind of health care and everybody else is fighting for the same level mm-hmm. of attention to detail and caring. And like the thing is, is that a lot of the skills of a doctor are mental, right? A lot of it is them using their brain. And mm-hmm. if I show up in the office and a doctor looks at me and says, this body is not worth my brain, I cannot, there is nothing I can do that is guaranteed to force them into a diagnostic mindset. Yep. Mm-hmm. I just have to write the appointment off as a loss. So when we're talking about cost of care, we really can't take anything anybody says about what fat people's care costs at face value because we don't actually know what it looks like for fat people to consistently, reliably get high quality health care. This is what makes it so chilling to me because, okay, in this in this discussion that we've been having and then in the things that I was reading to prepare for this, you know, the things that uh, people in the medical community who, I mean, it's it's always disclosed at the very end that this doctor, you know, who's been talking throughout the article about how how well Ozempic <laughs> works, you know, is like fully like employed by Novo Nordisk or like Eli right? Lilly or whatever. Um, but it's really chilling to me because something that comes up over and over again in this coverage is like it's framed in terms of access, right? And it's like, oh, so many people in the United States are diabetic or pre-diabetic. And so few of them have access, you know, to these, you know, miraculous, wonderful drugs. And I'm just like, that is so sinister and like extractive Mm -hmm. because we know, we know how expensive these drugs are both in terms of, you know, the, the actual monetary cost, like the contact with the healthcare system that that entails, like the side effects that these drugs can entail and like dealing with those. And I don't know, it just seems like um, I feel like there was a term. I think it came from a sociologist. I think Tressie McMillan Cottom is like a sociologist of higher education and coined Mm -hmm. the term predatory inclusion to describe like for profit colleges. And I was just getting like predatory, predatory access vibes. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is not at all about like population health or anything. This is about. Yeah capturing this gigantic and growing this gigantic market, which is premised on like not to be too grim about it, but like eliminationist ideas about fat people. Yeah. Um, So that's not too grim. That's, that's baseline accuracy. (laughs) That is is the floor for accurate discussion. And we need to have people who are not fat activists saying it. So thank you. Um, Sure thing. (laughs) And I share a quick story. Sure. Which is that when I started tweeting about these drugs intermittently, I don't know, six or nine months ago, somebody responded to me and they just said something that was so interesting to me, which is that they are a fat person with some kind of GLP-1 issue. It's, you know, an issue with the GLP-1 system. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, genetic hereditary. And they know that it is never going to be addressed because the GLP-1 system has been hacked for weight loss. And weight loss is all the research is ever going to focus on. And so this person is like, I know that there's never going to be a medication that will treat my actual issue because my actual issue is not the issue that the GLP-1 drugs are being designed to treat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's it's like the classic Atul Gawande cost conundrum piece from The New Yorker mm-hmm. in 2009, which was 
during the fight over the uh, ACA, the Affordable Care Mm -hmm. Act, where we had kind of discussion of at this point, you know, what are the main issues in healthcare? And of course, cost is sort of what was discussed most centrally through the frameworks of the real problem in U.S. healthcare that's getting out of control is that, you know, we're seeing all this waste, fraud and abuse. And the biggest waste, fraud and abuse is something called overutilization. And this cost conundrum article in The New Yorker was illustrated with a drawing, like a caricature of a fat person covered in bandages Mm -hmm. with like a broken leg and a crutch and price tags everywhere all over their body. Remember that. And it's really important to remember that, you know, in so many ways, I think some of this mirrors the conversation around medicalization and disability that can be very reductive and sort of like almost seem like it has like two firm sides and no nuance in between. And obviously there are a lot of overlaps between disability and between fatness. And and there are a lot of people who, you know, occupy both subject positions. But this this really sort of portrayed waste viscerally. And we see this, you know, throughout um, political cartoons, like the deficit is portrayed as a fat person. You know, it's it is, I think, more so than disability weaponized as the projection of a demographic anxiety right now. And it's totally fair game to say, you know, the United States is going to fall behind because there are too many fat people in the U.S. and Ozempic is the cure. That's totally okay and normal. And if you sort of did that kind of mental gymnastics in a lot of other subject positions, like that would be something that would be categorically unacceptable. And I think it's a, it's really interesting because when you compare disability and fatness sort of writ large side by side when it comes to the waste, fraud and abuse argument, you know, there are things that people just won't go there anymore when it comes to disability that they still would back then. And I think some of that vitriol that we saw really taken out of the healthcare debate by the insistence on no more stigmatizing people with pre-existing conditions, like, you know, whatever, mm. has actually just not gone anywhere. It's if we're moved laterally to concentrate mm. on fatness more specifically. It's like that narrative actually never went anywhere. Yeah. So I think first thing that we should start with is the uh, framing of the obesity revolution. So we're going to start with some of the fours, and then we'll go through some of the againsts, you know, like, because I think... As we walk through some of these takes, I think the the most useful thing that we can do here is respond to them using this lens, basically, that we've just discussed in this perspective, really specifically, because as we're saying, this is not necessarily a, a widely accessible take at the moment. And so one of the four arguments for Ozempic that is everywhere right now is this idea these are life-changing drugs that will cure the United States of the biggest uh, current health issue, which is obesity, so-called obesity. So to sort of frame this one, I've got a quote from (laughs) a piece in Stat News, which was called, New Weight Loss Drugs Are Changing the Narrative on Obesity with a Push from Pharma, which opens with A two-part message is permeating the halls of medicine and the fabric of society, sliding into (laughs) medical school lectures, pediatricians' offices, happy hours, and social feeds. Obesity is a chronic biological disease, and it's treatable with a new class of medications. The condition has long been framed as a result of poor lifestyle decisions and a failure of willpower, eating too much and exercising too little. 
but a new generation of highly effective obesity medications and the overt and subtle messaging from the pharmaceutical companies making them are starting to change the narrative. Oh, gosh, these are terrible. I'm so sorry. <laughs> History has shown that new blockbuster drugs can alter how people think about health. Valium changed. You don't fucking say. <laughs> Valium changed society's views on anxiety in the in the 1960s and Prozac uh, on depression in the 80s. People worried about uh, their cholesterol after ads for Zocor ended up on NFL games. Now the new obesity drugs are hitting the market, heating up one of the biggest pharmaceutical competitions in history and ra raising profound questions of cost equity, and cultural bias. And like previous blockbusters, these drugs may also end up changing how people think about what it means to be sick and what it takes to be healthy. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. It's very like interesting. in my heart. <laughs> yeah. Nothing is being concealed. I actually think that that, like, you know, an episode about science journalism would be another episode, but like, I actually appreciate that article's candor for like, literally just like explaining the headline. Like, yeah, yeah. And just like what, what happens, right. When you conceive of a re, re taxonomize benign human variation as disease. Well, you can't actually cure benign human variation because it's not disease. And so all you can do is, create inducements and incent incentives for the chronic administration of different medications that don't necessarily have any particular outcomes at all. Like I was just thinking like, right, Valium and Prozac. And as we all know now, Americans don't no longer experience anxiety and depression because we have these <laughs> blockbuster drugs, right? It's like, what are you talking about? You can't actually cure aspects of like benign human variation. You can modulate them, but they're not actually diseases in the classic disease model. These are, these are metaphors gone awry that have like drifted very far away from the empirical anchors that they're supposed to have in anyone's body. And so it's like, if you're taking, yeah, if you're taking fatness and turning it into a disease uh, and then you're, you know, but it's so clear in that article, they're like, well, we don't really mean cure. We mean changing how people talk. So now people will use language like cure, but that's not actually what's being proposed at all because it's not a real thing. It's just like a complete, like it, it actually is a rhetorical shift that like, is a, is a portal to a lot of money um, and a lot of real serious impacts. But I just think it's so sort of plainly stated in that piece. It's kind of incredible. Mm -hmm. It also in some ways feels like an assertion of the kind of good fatty framework, right? Like the, I'll read a, a quote from Dr. Fatima Cody Stan, uh, Stanford from 60 Minutes in January. Again, this is like kind of elaborating on the obesity is a disease framework. Um, and Ugh. it gets a lot more explicit about the kind of role of the good fatty framework in um, how this is actually being communicated. So she says, obesity is a brain disease. My last patient that I saw today was a young woman who's 39 who struggles with severe obesity. She's been working out five to six times a week consistently. She's eating very little. Her brain is defending a certain set point. Oh my God. What? It's really wild. Oh my God. Like it's really, really, truly wild that human beings being difficult to starve to death 
That's a brain yeah, disease. Right. The brain disease, like right? Brain like that's a neurological I mean, you, deficit that you won't just lie yes. down and fucking die. Yeah. <laughs> it's what it sounds like. And I mean, Dr. Stanford has been in this for a long time. Dr. Stanford has been on this circuit since 2017, 2018, at least. Mm-hmm. Doing the same thing, hawking the same message. And it's all about how like, the problem with weight stigma is that it makes people feel bad. And the way to address it is by making people not fat so they don't feel bad about being fat. You know, but I, I feel like this continued employment of the it's not your body, it's your brain thing, which is like very it's both connected to like the kinder, more quote unquote humane approach that people are using. And it's definitely just like it's a rhetorical shift. It has absolutely no shift in like the material realities that people Mm -hmm. are subjected to. Um, It's related to that, that whole like kinder, more humane veneer on top of forced weight loss and an elimination campaign. But then it's also like definitely a consequence of what Monica said, which is this thing that locates weight stigma, which is not, and even (laughs) Even the term weight stigma, I, I feel know. like you can learn a lot about where somebody stands on the topic of mm. fat oppression by the by the language they use. Like weight stigma is like weight stigma and obesity stigma are are just like these very clear flags that say like, I think that the problem is people feeling bad so they won't engage in health behaviors. Mm. Um, and that's like all over the limit. And it's like and to think that that's that's. Like people like Rebecca Pohl, who works at the Red Center at UConn, like the most prominent people studying weight stigma and how it impacts people, which is just by de facto restricted to the realm of emotions and thoughts. Um, they are the most prominent producers of weight stigma research. And so even our concept of like how fat phobia actually operates in the medical context is so limited because all of the research that people are drawing on in order to talk about weight stigma that occurs in the medical context is like, again, limited to the realm of feelings and thoughts. And so like helping along this body brain separation Mm -hmm. that I keep seeing come up, especially with discussions about weight loss that have like occurred like i remember that cut article Oof. um oh which my god one was yeah. it? the one that's uh life after food yes life after food oh my gosh oh my god. like a great quote from people that one talking about <laughs> yeah people talking about how like they don't think about food anymore or like that they're not like consumed by they're not consumed by thoughts about like eating a specific thing or whatever. And then honestly, which is so funny when it's contrasted with the thing that the article ends with, which is like, oh, you know, this person, if they have like a thing that they're a big eating week, which is wild, just like as a term, I know, a big yeah. eating week, <laughs> a big eating week coming up, um, then they'll skip out on taking the medication. Um, which is because they still want to be able to enjoy that specific food. It's, it's, it goes back to this and Monica said it, it's like we're making people difficult for not just starving themselves without any kind of like pharmaceutical manipulation at all. Like they are somehow flawed, deeply flawed because they don't want to starve. Mm-hmm. Like that's just that's wild. But it's also like the pathologization of wanting any kind of food <laughs> or yeah. enjoying food 
like I remember the quote from that person who was like not the not the quote it was like this description of how food was like a a celebration an occasion like a main um like a main event and people would think about you know the food that they would have later while they were eating the food that they had now and I think that is so deeply insidious because of the ways that like that whole food as a central like uh cultural or social like occasion it's so deeply racialized mm-hmm. yeah. like i i think that one of the most irritating and prominent narratives about eating and eating and overeating that has uh sunken into medicine for and for a while now it's not mm-hmm. new but like this notion that people of color like hold food differently like in their cultures and that that predisposes them to being fatter and then like the way that this has sort of been like unnecessarily demonized like in like in the cut article like like why shouldn't food be a central placeholder the only reason why food shouldn't be a central cultural placeholder and i'm not and and i'm saying this while also saying that i reject the framing that people of color have a different relationship to food and culture because it's just bullshit um but like why shouldn't food be uh an occasion why should it not be the central point of a celebration and it's such cyclical thinking like this is bad because it makes you fat not because Mm. of any other reason but then like the justification for it becomes not that somehow and we're supposed to pretend like Mm -hmm. the reason why this thing is bad is is anything besides fat phobia in the world like we're supposed to pretend that there is some like empirical basis to this worry when Mm -hmm. like the only reason why we care about fatness at all is because of the notion that fatness is blackness like it's just very it's just very transparent and like people it's normal for people to think about food and also like everybody (laughs) mentioned in this fucking article is like oh my god it's so annoying when food becomes a fixation which by the way is only heightened in a fat phobic world like you would not be this fixated on not eating food if eating food was not a big deal you're thinking about food all the time and it is because you are you your body wants to eat and also because you are constantly thinking about avoiding it yeah and if that wasn't Mm -hmm such a central piece of how you relate to food then like this wouldn't be such a problem like i don't and so like the way that that is just like presented and not unpacked at all is really 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 irritating too well and i feel like the thing too that's that's part of this frame is like it's both reinforcing the the kind of medical standard of like the only healthy body is a body between this range and this range of BMI. And that's the body that gets healthcare. And there is a kind of like preemptive posturing that I find really interesting in Dr. Stanford's public communication, where she's always trying to like circumvent or preempt the argument that like somehow people who are taking these drugs are skipping the line or accessing some sort of like privilege that they haven't earned through hard work. She says like, She's been eating very little. She's been working out really hard, you know. It's Catholic mm. shit. It's it's flagellation. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's like and also like sets setting that as like the most important problem. Like to be like, oh no, they're not skipping the line. Don't worry. Is also they're suffering. They're suffering. It's a value laden choice in terms of like what you're saying. The focus is right. Like is the focus defending this medical practice against people saying that 
folks are skipping the line, like because that really feels like what you think is the most important problem here. And that's really telling in a terrifying fucking way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it's also like an example. But I also think some of that is like very intentional. Of course. Like it's yeah, when people totally. respond to a question that hasn't been asked. And then mm-hmm. you yep. use that as leeway to shape the, the grounds under which the conversation is had. Mm-hmm. It's like if I were to go and give a speech on like some policy and I'm like, oh, and like the problem with the policy, let's say, is that it'll end in the death of like a bunch of people. But I'm like, don't worry. Everybody will have equal chance to be <laughs> killed off by this yeah. policy. <laughs> And the mm-hmm. conversation shifts to the the equalness of it or the equity of it. And it mm-hmm. is it is like basic conversation manipulation that is just so fucking transparent and like it never gets any pushback. It's I think it's about um I see a lot of discourse on Twitter about people with diabetes not mm-hmm. being able to access it. Mm-hmm. And like I do, I do think if you're gonna take these drugs, diabetes is probably the best reason. And so like yeah, it's messed up that she's defending. Like, really, what she's defending is not even prescribing practices. It's marketing. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, she's defending mm-hmm. the company's yes. choice to create yep. excess demand for this product while they were still way far away from being able to meet that demand. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. In order to and like that, you know, that like, ooh, everybody wants this, and there's a shortage. That mm-hmm. amps up the demand even more. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's really sinister. Mhm. And this is so this is so key and I I think that's that's part of why I didn't even want us to focus on the scarcity argument because like the skipping the line argument that's a kind of moral hazard framework that yeah. is so fucking irrelevant also like the artificial yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and i think just to double down on on dr stanford's equity frame with one final quote but then i want us to get to the life after food article um specifically this is from a uh, op-ed co-written by dr fatima cody stanford and someone named kelly copes anderson who is the head of diversity equity and inclusion at eli lily and company Company. i love that it's called recognizing obesity as a disease not a choice is a step toward health equity shut the fuck up okay (laughs) quote Treating obesity and related conditions costs the United States $1.4 trillion every year. Obesity is a cause of death for nearly one out of five adults in America. First of all, what? I do not trust these numbers, right? That was a disclaimer <laughs> that was Where made earlier. Where does the citation go? And no citation. Web page. You no, know, like this, that's fully bullshit. Uh, they then write, U.S. policies have failed to catch up with medical understanding in addressing this public health crisis. Without the right kinds of policy interventions, nearly half of Americans will have obesity by 2030. Again, Don't trust the numbers. (laughs) Um, They write, the significance of these uh, advancements, like uh, the pharmaceutical injections, goes beyond treating individuals with obesity. They represent a decisive moment in shifting society away from viewing obesity as caused by individuals making poor choices towards treating obesity as a manageable chronic disease like asthma or high blood pressure. This is a crucial step in eliminating bias against people with obesity, which has hobbled efforts to address this epidemic, even as it fuels health inequity. 
Oh, that hurts my head. Yeah, I'm fuming oh, over here. Fuming. I'm making such a face that my face actually hurts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so, yeah, it's like this, this whole framework, I think, of this sort of crucial step of eliminating bias by making sure that insurance companies will pay for these shots specifically for weight loss. Really, what is being kind of held up here and never is mentioned in the article really explicitly is like, well, how does this become a health equity issue? Because we withhold medical care from people based mm-hmm. on their weight often. I mean, right. I have seen doctors that listen to this show and say, I loved the episode with Mikey and Monica. And oh, I'm so excited. You're like, take, you're doing an Ozempic episode. I love prescribing this to my patients because it means they can get the surgeries they're not allowed to get because of their yeah. And it's like- That's how it's an access uh, issue. And that's uh, how they're playing this off. And it's just unconscionable. Right. Like there is no reason we can't make equipment that works for all sizes of bodies. Yes. There is no reason we can't train clinicians to work with all sizes of bodies, except that we don't want to. Yeah. Well, it's like, um, it's like we were saying earlier, I think a couple people mentioned this. It's the, the, the argument here is eliminating weight stigma by just eliminating fat people, yep. like, yep. which is so like ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't make sense on any, on any level. And it certainly doesn't make sense from any type of like, I don't know, authentic kind of health equity framework. Um, but that's such a good point. You know what I mean? It's like, if we want to treat fat people, we could just do that. You know what I mean? Right. (laughs) Right. But the thing that is also really notable is that it's not even just like the art, like that specific op-ed is not just framed by this like unspoken lack of access issue that is purely about will. It's, it, it, it becomes an equity argument because of the fact that non-white people specifically yeah are most likely to be classified as being obese it's it's solely because like that is the entirety of the equity argument that is that is present Mm -hmm. it is specifically because communities of color are more likely to be fat and when you make equity into a charge that is specifically specifically and only characterized by what non-white people are more likely to have Mm -hmm. that's not just fat elimination that is literally just elimination that's racial elimination yeah Mm -hmm. um dare i say eugenic (laughs) yes yeah no i mean it is the thing is right if you look at the the chart of the stages of genocide calling a group of people an illness Mm -hmm. it's a step yeah yeah. Organizing yeah. institutions to eliminate those people, that's a step. And we've just been, it under we've the just been marinating in those steps yeah. for like yeah. decades. For so long. And and it's all under the guise that they're doing what is best for not for not even and to an extent, like fat people aren't even necessarily supposed to be the primary recipients of the benefits of medicalizing us. It's mm-hmm. really the re- it's really everybody else. Mm-hmm. It's the taxpayer. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's the taxpayer. It's the future child that won't have the fat parent. Mm-hmm. It's it's like all of these hypothetical stakeholders that don't actually ha- like 
the, the the relationships, like the connections that are being made in terms of who will benefit from obesity prevention, like they aren't even real. It's not a reflection of how any of these things actually work, but it doesn't actually have to make sense when you have mm-hmm. the power to shape how the issue is discussed in public. Mm-hmm. This is this has become an equity issue because Novo Nordisk, their number one favorite spokesperson and an Eli Lilly DEI person said so mm-hmm. because they said so. And that is why it is now an equity. It's the same thing as like this hitting people with diabetes against people who are taking this for like elective whatever weight reason. loss. Yeah. For whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. For whatever reason. I mean, no, I mean, the 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 reason I think is clear, which is so interesting because the whole even that like people with diabetes against people taking it for elective weight loss, even that is fake. Right. Because people taking it for elective weight loss are not fat. Mm-hmm. But the but the community that gets scapegoated as the ones being as the ones taking it for elective weight loss are being characterized as fat. So that's like mm-hmm. baseline level. Like it's already fucked up from there. So then so then you have people you have fat people being coded as people taking it for elective weight loss when Mm -hmm. the choice to engage in weight loss is never actually elective for us like whether or not you want to or don't want to you will you like you will be accosted to lose weight like that is just (laughs) the reality and it will be and it will be absolutely this hurdle that is placed in front of getting other forms of care that you Mm -hmm. actually need and so it's never actually elective Fat people are being scapegoated as a, as a group taking it for elective weight loss when we're not actually we're not actually getting to opt into it with any amount of like actual autonomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's all just like this. It's it's all just it's 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 this deliberate manipulation of how medicine actually works for fat people. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like very irritated at how people have accepted these and like. To an extent, I can't blame people that much because I think that if you aren't following these issues as closely, it's it's very hard to figure out like what bullshit, what is bullshit and what is not, especially when people are increasingly employing these equity based arguments. It's like equity is supposed to be good. Uh, Caring about people of color is supposed to be good. Like all of these things that are supposed to be good that are being used for bad. Like it, it is very hard to parse those things out as bullshit if you don't have all of the context Mm -hmm. and when you live in a society that holds up weight loss as this absolute good it's extremely hard to parse that out because (laughs) to do that you would have to have already reached the conclusion that forcing anyone to lose weight for any real reason instead of giving them the actual thing they need is bad. Mm -hmm. Like you would have to have already reached that conclusion and most people haven't. And so they don't have the tools to like parse these things out. And that allows for entire industries and the people and like the entities in them, like Novo Nordis and like Eli Lilly to manipulate the public's understanding of these issues. And it's just really fucking insidious. And I want to fight Fatima Cody Stanford in a cage. Like I want to go cage (laughs) match. Like it is because it is so... Because she is the queen of she I mean, she didn't invent that that method of like making it seem like you're doing a good thing when you're actually like a fucking goon being hired by an industry like she didn't invent that that technique. But like I always think back to when I was first looking her up and like doing research on her. And there's this 
weird like um commentary or article on in the in like on the AMA website about her like ending the obesity shame game that came out in 2020 and like in it she mentions that a colleague that she's known for 35 years has always been standoffish towards her because when they were like five or six years old she came up to her in a dance class and said that she was fat like I always go (sighs) back it's the weirdest thing to like know about a person like that Fatima Cody Stanford like so many years ago went up to a colleague if if this is at all real because it really just sounds like the kind of anecdote that you throw in when somebody's interviewing you in order to like explain the way you are um <laughs> but, like, it's it's like to know that like she she called a colleague she called a future colleague fat when they were children in a dance class and has now made it her career to shill for the weight loss industry and is using that as like color in her backstory is just like very odd to me like this is all just fucking bizarre i'm just like why it's bizarre the whole Mm -hmm. thing is just bizarre it is but i i really appreciate i think it's so important to underline like how here right part of what's happening is that equity is sort of um, the matrix in which, you know, uh, the the symbiotic relationship between elective, an elective relationship to the tools of medicine or the resources Mm -hmm. of medicine and a structurally imposed regulatory gatekeeping, right, version that those two things that appear as opposites, right, and are, are, are in fact dependent upon one another, right? And I just think that, like, that's so often the hardest thing to talk about when we're trying to have like um, a humanized perspective on how people navigate the American healthcare system. Right. And so it's like, I think, I think that's also where, and so I'm so appreciating this conversation, the sort of like, is the drug good or bad? The sort of like moral evaluative framework, mm-hmm. right. Or like, or which people are good when they take it and which people are bad when they take it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, actually is just sort of, covering over a much more complicated situation where, you know, these supposedly antagonistic, you know, populations or antagonistic versions of access actually depend on one another, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's like this like spectrum from Mm -hmm. these weird articles about like, can you believe those Hollywood stars? They're all taking Ozempic. Ha 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 ha. That's kind of bad, maybe, um, to the like, you know, to the deserving um, patients with diabetes who deserve this, right? To the patients who need to learn to want to take this drug to, you know, and that's like all of these things are actually existing in a relational web, right? The sum mm-hmm. total of which is like eugenic market-driven neoliberal healthcare in the United States, which is a way of making these decisions about what populations don't just get to live and die, but like how, under what conditions, you know, and I think again, it just strikes me, this is so often the kind of conversation left out when health is being politicized, right? It just has so much resonance for me with similar questions about, you know, trans healthcare in this moment where it's like, yeah, what are we talking about? Like some people get things, you know, and they're seen as elective and other people have to prove that they're medically necessary and have to go through a bunch of bullshit that, you know, intensely regulates their lives and is harmful. And, you know, like these are the kinds of rationalizations that need to be dressed up, right? And it seems like this sort of for and against, right? Model is so efficient among other things at rationalizing all of that um, Mm -hmm. by actually deleting right, from our perspective, so many of the critical relationships at stake here, right? And so 
I mean, I just, I just thought that was such a wonderful way of um, bringing that up. And then it really does kind of, you know, create a, a place for these weird anecdotes, right? Where it's like, you have to have an origin story for, you know, for these characters whose mm-hmm. public, you know, musings have to like prime us to accept things that we could all step back and look at and be like, wait a minute, this makes no sense. It also is awful, right? Mm-hmm. 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 Totally. I have one, one little thing that I just want to pick up on some, what Mikey said about we're doing all of this in place of giving people what they actually need. Mm. Um, and then what Jules was saying about, you know, what are the material conditions that people exist under? Like, mm-hmm. I think it's really important for us to name. And I think Mikey and I both know this and like forget it. And then we forget that other people don't know is that yep. the whole obesity <laughs> thing, right, is just a distraction from the actual social changes that we need to make, right? Like. Yeah. We know how to address social structural determinants of health. We're just choosing not to. So mm-hmm. we're distracting everybody with this and trying to, you know, neoliberally put the blame back on individuals. It's like because there's a pandemic that nobody's dealing with. And we're all just trying to figure out why we feel so weird and bad. So let's blame the fat people or let's blame the trans people or whoever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it it like doesn't go said often enough, I think. And and to, it really does sum up kind of like the bottom line here of these first four frames or like four Ozempic frames. Um, you know, the idea of like, these are life-changing drugs. This is going to cure the United States of a number one health issue. Everyone deserves access to these drugs so that we can make everyone thin to combat uh, anti-fat to stigma. combat weight stigma. Yeah, yeah like those <laughs> two, um, four Ozempic arguments, the purpose of those arguments is to make you look away from exactly this point that you're making, Monica, which yes. is that ultimately mm-hmm. the conversation about obesity at all is in and of itself constitutive of a intentional intervention that is meant to distract you and tell you that a different problem is going on that is entirely then mystified through various mythologies into this kind of moral landscape where we start to see the siloing and the layering of like, oh, well, here is deserving patient group A. They're the real diabetics. And here's, you know, deserving patient group B, which is, you know, the people that really need to lose this weight. And then here's the people that are, you know, taking the drugs away from them. And here's the people who are making the drugs themselves. And isn't, you know, it's this entire web. And the more that the siloing happens and the more that the finger pointing happens, the more fracturing and zero sum we start to see the conversation. And the further and further and further and further we get away from the actual real point, which is that this is all saying, look away from the very obvious things that we can do and refuse to. Right. Like look away from the third leading actual cause yep. of death in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Um, actual cause of death, not made up cause of death. Yeah. Um, you know, and so like, is Ozempic good or bad? Like, I don't know, but I'd prefer to see that money spent on ventilation and masks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and this brings us to our, you know, one, some of our moral framing arguments, you know, um, the idea that these drugs are not just like a product, but a God sent potential society wide innovation, a game changer that will save ourselves, society and the economy from the 
productive drain of fatness that is absolutely worth all the risks and side effects, which really kind of characterizes this article that went around a lot um, from The Cut from New York Magazine, which we've referenced the Life After Food piece that Mikey mentioned. It's called Life After Food, a diabetes drug has become an off-label appetite suppressant, changing the definition of being thin and what it takes to get there. This is a brutal read. Um, There are so many bad things that I could have pulled from it. It was difficult to pick. But the one that I think is most important is this moral frame that emerges, this baptism by injection, which is a direct quote. Oh, my God. Um, Okay, well, I'm Jewish, so I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So to quote the article, they write, quote, the basic mechanisms of these drugs are not new. The first GLP-1 drug, exenatide, was approved for diabetes in the U.S. in 2005. It was greeted as a revelation. Improvements came quickly. Quote, there were just gasps at the American Diabetes Association's scientific meeting when results for for liraglutide, another GLP-1 drug, and a forerunner to Ozempic was announced, says Dr. Robert Gabay, the organization's chief scientific and medical officer. Quote, Cheers and some standing ovations. It was dramatic. Then it continues, from a medical perspective, their effectiveness is thrilling and patients welcome them with practically religious reverence. Paul Ford, who has always struggled with his appetite, wrote and wired, quote, where before my brain had been screaming, screaming at air raid volume, there was sudden silence, quote, once he was on one of these drugs. Quote, at an office, I observed the stack of candies and treats with no particular interest, he wrote. Quote, the sin, gluttony, the New York Cut uh, author adds, quote, is washed away, baptism by injection. So kind of the ultimate expression of a lot of these things that have been very subtextual um, mm-hmm. and some of the other quotes that we've been talking about, but this article in the cut, it's worth noting, I think, is incredibly graphic. It's um gets through, you know, a number of people's um difficult experiences with Ozempic. It contains like the anecdotes that Mikey was mentioning. And it opens with this anecdote from uh an an actress named Allison that the author is meeting for coffee in Midtown. And she has the, an almond milk cortado or something. <laughs> and she, oh quote, God. she, quote, looks like an Instagram version of herself, but in real life. And um, they quote this person saying, somebody once told me I had a size zero personality and they assumed that I was thinner than I was. We don't talk about it, but everyone knows that thin is power. And that is kind of the justification of the suffering. And it's very, it is very Christian in this like, kind of like, you've got the suffering or Catholic. Was it Abby that you mentioned this is all very (laughs) Catholic vibes because it's the suffering (laughs) and it's the punishment and it's then the earning of... It's the extirpation of the sin through suffering. Right. The redemption of the sin, the sin of being hungry, of like needing food for your body to function. Right. I mean, and and this is kind of like if the if what we were talking about earlier was sort of cementing the idea that a um, a healthy body is one that is not fat in a uh, firmly kind of clinical sense. This is one that reifies the thin body is not just good, better and more of a moral actor. But there is a feeling of like that this article is writing about this drug in terms of giving people access to power and that that's part of what 
the author also finds so alluring about this as a possibility for the kind of society-wide intervention that could allow everyone to look like an Instagram version of themselves, but in real life, it's really pretty horrific. But I do think it's worth talking about for a second these kind of ways that it's being framed specifically as a um, intervention in what is a moral hazard. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. I just wanted to say we haven't said the phrase Protestant work ethic in this mm-hmm. episode yet. And that is Let's like a million percent. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, so Der that, Geist you des Kapitalismus has entered the fucking chat. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I kept thinking about, um, and and this is just I, I don't I don't know if um I don't know if I mentioned this already or if I mentioned this last time, but like so much uh I'm I'm continually struck by the very particular and this and this is not necessarily science journalism this is like something else um but like it it very much mirrors the issues that i often have with science journalism in that the the world in which the article exists is so specific like (laughs) also Mm. like it's like this is a world where apparently nobody talks about thin being power, but the relentless p- pursuit of thinness somehow doesn't constitute that discourse on its own or like the relentless like social and professional fat exclusion that happens is somehow not an obvious depiction. And and like people who are and I'm not an actor by any means, but people who are like actors or like who like try i think a lot about like abby rose morris who um hosts more than tracy turnblad but like she talks a lot on tiktok especially about all the experiences that fat actors go through mm-hmm. like this very mm-hmm. explicit like you are fat so and we're looking for somebody who is not fat mm-hmm. like and joe who is my co-host on unsolicited also talks about this a lot on their, their social media like the knowledge that thin is power is is there like it's not it's not unspoken it's spoken it's, not it's unspoken. enacted yeah it's not unspoken it is it's, enacted. Uh, it's loud it's air raid volume some might say <laughs> yeah and then the other thing is that like the world is also so limited and that the only fat people that exist are people who are like plagued by these hunger pains like this desire to eat fucking everything in sight and i'm gonna and i'm gonna say this and i'm gonna try to to tread lightly because i don't want to reinforce like i don't want to reinforce uh something that i see happen a lot in fat political education which is this um sort of pleading that not all of us want to eat like that not all of us want to eat like that like there there are fat people who who eat healthily who have proper appetites that are the right size right like i don't want to reinforce that yeah but there is it, I, it's very clear that the only fat people who exist in the world of this article are people who are plagued by this unending hunger that um, one, I think, is incredibly indicative of like the kinds of narratives that are sought out and represented in these forms of journalism, but um, also just indicative of like how fat people are somehow unable to have any other struggle 
even if like not even like we're not able to have positive relationships with food like fuck that like we're not even allowed to have struggles with food that aren't defined by like plaguing hunger mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like <laughs> which is so so fucking weird um just having done the the time that i've done in the fat activism space is just like very odd very fucking weird to then read something like this that reminds me like oh like this is what people think all fat people are and it's not necessarily that i'm upset that our only possible existence and sin you know is gluttony Mm -hmm. it's not that it's 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 the incredible flattening and loss of complexity that just like reflects how we're really not people like Mm -hmm. even among people who are attempting some kind of multifaceted exploration into this medication like they are literally impossible to take an extra step to allow some sort of fat narrative that isn't plagued by hunger Mm-hmm. it's just it's 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 really 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 striking to me as someone who now spends all of my time like wading through the complexity of fat like fatness has a lot of different existences takes on a lot of different lives and once you're sort of submersed in the understanding and appreciation for fat people as complex people reading something like this is like holy shit yeah. what the fuck like yeah. it is yeah yeah sickening i mean and and just to give another example of this this is another uh story from the same piece quote i have tried every single thing says anna a new york woman in her early 50s who like all the patients interviewed wasn't eager to use her real name nothing worked until monjaro which is another uh that's the eli Lilly version the desire to nosh evaporated Emotional eating on Ozempic is a recipe for making yourself sick. Quote, I'm now one of those people who's just like not that hungry, she says, and I feel better than anyone, than everyone. So, yeah, it's like explicitly like that (laughs) this article reproduces this sort of scale of moral exactitude where like the further away you get from experiencing hunger, uh, the better you are <laughs> as a person oh. and mm-hmm. that what sort of is located as the the medicalized problem with fat people that needs to be fixed in this article is this framework of hunger and then also also kind of like further pathologizes that as this it's it's a, a kind of classic eugenics argument um, against mental and <laughs> intellectual and developmental disabilities, which is like, oh, well, you know, this is a kind mm-hmm. of nature meets nurture bomb on society's Ugh. survival for the future. And this is about the kind of constant evolutionary spiral and that, like, if we are going to evolve, we have to kind of evolve beyond, like, the uh, restriction of not everyone being able to be super thin or something like it's like uh it's very much like it almost it makes me think that this guy's like end point of evolution must be something like Logan's run right where it's like everyone is thin they're in matching white outfits you've got a cute jewel in your hand and you're dead by 30 googling Logan's run right now it's a great movie highly mm-hmm. recommend I should watch it um I generally like sci-fi um that I have so many thoughts and feelings right now that really dovetails with a thought that I was happening, which is like, even if, even if the fat foes win and everybody is taking Ozempic, White the Manjaro, and everybody is thin, 
what happens to the obesity epidemic? Because my money is not that the obesity epidemic is solved. My money is that the obesity epidemic expands and that they just change the criteria for what fat is. Because even if you get rid of all of the the actual fat people, there will still be the largest person in the room. You know, like there's still the criteria will just keep moving. And in fact, like the bar has already moved in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the United States used to have a higher standard for overweight and then they dropped it to bring it in line with what was happening internationally. Um, So it's like there's there's a lack of thinking all the way to the actual conclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thought that I was having was um, about what Mikey was saying that, you know, fat people are only allowed to exist in this state of like complete abjection with their hunger. And like, like if fat people aren't sharing a disordered eating narrative, they're not welcome. They're not invited. And the disordered eating is what is getting passed off as fatness, like fatness and disordered eating are being presented as synonymous. And then Mm -hmm. what happens is people are not getting care for an eating disorder. They're getting obesity drugs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's like a whole thing happening where fat people are like expected really to develop eating disorders that, you know, may make us lose weight or may make us gain weight. But like more and more people are finding that anorexia and binge eating are really closely related, that binge eating can start from a place of restriction. And so like, I don't want to get far into this because it is a little bit tangential, but like, I think the long, long story short is that people who are making empty, unsupportable claims about preventing obesity and eating disorders are just doing no such fucking thing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think this actually kind of brings us to our one of our our first against arguments, which is the claim, you know, is this a real cure or just another trend? Is (laughs) obesity a matter of willpower or genetics? Which is a question that was asked by Bari Weiss on her Honestly podcast in a absolute shit show of an episode about Ozempic that features a doctor, Vinay Prasad, and then a crank who is more of a crank than Vinay Prasad, um, (laughs) who we'll get into in a second. But really kind of what, uh, and I'll read from the description of of the episode, is obesity a matter of willpower or genetics? Is Ozempic a permanent solution to the obesity epidemic? Or is it more like a Band-Aid, a quick fix that does little to address the root causes of obesity? And to that end, what is the root cause of obesity? And so this was kind of the focus of of Bari's uh, inquiry, let's say. And this is really kind of an argument that's like, you know, medicalizing anti-fatness is, is this like a real cure or just another trend? And it's it's partially inspired um, and often paired with the observation that when, pe- when people stop the drug, they gain weight back because it's like the weight loss is contingent on the state that the drug is putting your body in and things like that. And so... I think first it would be good to sort of just start by addressing the framework of, well, see, the problem with Ozempic is it's not a cure. Yeah. This really made me wonder. I was wondering as I was kind of reading all this is like, is this even the right question? Like, why are we starting from the premise that like obesity is a problem that needs to be cured and like, the only question is like, well, is is Ozempic truly a cure or is it a band-aid? It just feels like that is that's starting from the wrong premise. But no, I mean, 
it's so it's so revealing. It's definitely starting from the wrong premise, and it's also starting from the exact center of the public health field, right? Like that is where just about everybody, unless I talked to them when I was in grad school, or my team <laughs> talked to them, or like three of our other friends, right? Like unless you were exposed to me in 2016, you're out there. <laughs> Talking about obesity as a problem Mm -hmm. and enacting harm with the work that you do. And that's just like Mm -hmm. the state that we live in, right? That's just like the baseline for the field. And that's the other thing that I want to make sure people are coming away from this from is that like the moderate position on obesity is an extremist and harmful position. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. That's Mm -hmm. why it's so helpful to be like, Ah, and who is who's who's leading, you know, a whole episode uh, questioning Ozempic here is Barry Weiss, someone who believes that, you know, um, trans youth are only trans because in the 90s, this is in her book, they had eating disorders <laughs> and now they just love transitioning instead. Like for her, it's this, you know, cloaked moral oh moral God. position, right, that she doesn't want she she starting from the premise right that she would like certain groups of people not to exist in society um but also is suspicious of medicalization you know that fails to achieve that result because mm-hmm. uh, to her it wouldn't go far enough is the buried logic here right it just feels so yeah. like it's such a helpful reminder that um public health like the sort of you know cursed center of public health is fully compatible with that kind of ideological you know, moral position and worldview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. An eliminationist one. Absolutely. And, and not just compatible, but like actively. Right. Friendly. Actively back, actively in line with. And like, you know, what she's saying there is just the same question scientists were asking 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like right. it's same, same, same. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do we want to move on to our, our variation on this argument, which, uh, Ooh is courtesy of the guest that she had on this podcast uh, episode. The crank who's even beyond the crank level of of Prasad. Um, (laughs) I'm telling you, the experience of listening to this was bizarre because (laughs) never once have I come away from a conversation where Vinay Prasad has been a part of it where I had a kind of moment where I was like, oh, he came off really reasonable in that (laughs) until this. Um, And part of it is just contrast uh let's be honest but um yeah twilight zone i've got a uh (laughs) this is a i've got a a quick clip from a uh appearance that the same guy did on a different show not on bari's show because he's a little all over the place on that one so it was hard to find like a good soundbite but i found him on some other random like sketchy youtube (laughs) uh channel doing another (laughs) interview as you do Anthony Pompliano channel. Uh, okay. It's called like cool. the Pomp Pod or something. What? Oh my god! Um, Pomp I know. and circumstance. <laughs> I, I guess I don't know. His the guy's name is Callie Means, and uh, I'm gonna let him speak for himself. Uh, give me one sec. We're exponentially getting sicker, fatter, more depressed, more infertile. Every institution in the healthcare industry, they profit from people being sick and they've been silent on why we're getting sick, which is food. What Coke does is they get a bunch of consultants in the room and they have a playbook and the playbook revolves around how do we rig, how do we pay off, how do we weaponize institutions of trust? So a couple weeks ago, you had a 60 Minutes special on obesity. The doctor, Dr. Fatima Stanford from Harvard, on that special said that obesity is genetic. But the number one cause of obesity is genetics. 
she literally said that your choices and lifestyle and what you eat and how much movement you have does not have a large impact on obesity. It's genetic. And it's an urgent imperative that parents don't really question or stigmatize what their kid is eating, but need a pharmaceutical injection. Are these people dumb or are they being malicious or like what's going on? The, the, oh my god the music I, okay. is like reality tv show level oh my god okay that is like the podcast or i don't know the youtube video version of a meme floating around a facebook group <laughs> about like like i what and like people get like really hyped up about this stuff too oh my god and it's so unserious what mm-hmm. the fuck? yeah the, like right wing bro economy latching onto anti-fatness, I think should be a really clear signal to leftists that anti-fatness is aligned with fascism. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I mean, I'm reminded of uh, how Jesse Singal did that, did that podcast episode about like the whole Lindo situation. I'm, oh my like, God, I forgot about that. Like, why are you paying attention to this? That was like my first sort of clue about what was going to come about like you know like the overlap between like anti-trans and anti-fat sentiment that like we really see now like at its extreme i think Mm -hmm. yeah i mean and this guy is just you know a total like the problem is seed oils asshole who uh (laughs) himself was like a pharmaceutical lobbyist and a lobbyist for big companies and so you know i i would say this represents like the far sort of conspiracy theory critique of what exactly is going on here. And I think sometimes when you talk about like, okay, like part of the problematic intervention that this drug is doing is it's trying to medicalize a population that doesn't need to be medicalized in this way for this reason, two ends which do not align with making that person's life better, but align with the bottom line of the pharmaceutical company who owns the patent to that product, right? Like, There is a version of that critique that I think it's really important to just note goes in this direction that critiques Ozempic and critiques the medicalization of fatness, not for the reasons that we all do or have discussed for the last um, hour plus, but for these reasons of, well, what's going to happen is we're going to stop having a conversation about the right way that people should be bullying their kids about Mm -hmm. food and seed oils and this basically (laughs) conspiracy to keep us all sick. I mean, this guy, one of the arguments that he makes is like people with diseases like me with autoimmune diseases, that's also caused by this pharmaceutical conspiracy where they're feeding us food that makes us sick and they're trying to start a kind of maintenance regime. And I, I think it's really important to mention because like oftentimes There are going to be comments that we make and the kind of critiques that we make because of our focus on political economy that might seem like they brush up against uh, where this guy is coming from. So I, I always do feel like when you start dealing with medicalization, because oftentimes the conversation is so two-sided. It's this false binary. You're either pro, pro, pro or con, con, con against medicalization. And (laughs) both of those Mm -hmm. tend to come from these positions that are both rhetorically kind of not sound, but also that are in and of themselves um, reflective of this aggressive, antagonistic, anti-fat position and view of the world. 
It's really interesting to me that he's like anti-pharma and anti-fat people and finding a way to make those two positions simpatico. Um, I mean, because the the line goes back to like, we shouldn't medicalize. It's not we shouldn't medicalize obesity because fat people sh- like deserve to live good in the here and now. It's we shouldn't medicalize obesity because fat people are irresponsible and this their lack of willpower and fortitude is allowing for the furthering of like some grand pharmaceutical conspiracy mm-hmm. like <laughs> that's that's what it goes back to it's so um oh my god it's like you do constantly run into these places where it seems like if you're arguing about the complexities of medicalization that you end up in this weird place where you could, if you're not careful, end up aligned with these like absolute ridiculous like Russell Brand style. Um, and yeah. not to mention, yeah, like not to mention like still like ultimately eugenic like ideas. Super, yeah, yeah. super eugenic. Of, of health. Yeah. And like <laughs> the the oh, man, I'm so tempted. Monica, do you think that Rachel will be mad at me for bringing up the AOA? <laughs> because I really want to right about now. I don't think so. Okay. So okay. So but I'm not her. Friend. I can't speak for her. I don't know. This is a. This will probably be a patron episode, so we can always like cut it out of the main one, and you can ask her permission. Okay, because the thing, the thing that I was gonna say was, but part of the way that you can like parse those things, and is this, if you don't have all of the context, like we're sitting around here, like we can we can parse this out, but like for people who are struggling with that, I think what is important to look at is the material reality like what are the material impacts of this what does this actually do with regard to fat people and like that's where rachel's work on the anti-obesity assemblage comes in because you stop sort of assessing these you know whatever intervention on fatness is being proposed whether it's medical medicalization or not medicalization um you look at the impact of how you look at their impact on fat people like, does this lead to a reality in which fat people can exist or does it lead to a reality in which they are eliminated? And that is how you sort of evaluate whether or not something is working to promote anti-obesity, anti-fat um, conceptions of the self and also um, just like ideology in the world. Hmm. But this is all very confusing unless you keep in mind like what this actually does to and for fat people. So this person like is not interested in the well-being of fat people. Like if anything, fatness is this thing that he's running from, Mm -hmm. which often is the case with all these like weird right wing, like gym bros. I don't (sighs) Monica. I'm, I'm, I'm like, you take over. I am. I am just, I'm, I'm, I am exasperated. You've had it with seed oil, uh, guys. <laughs> yes. I'm with you, honestly. I'm reminded of how often fat activists get accused of being anti-vaxxers. And, you know, yes. fat activism mm. is often treated as equivalent to these other mm. positions Anti-scientific. because there's, right, because there's mm. not an understanding of how much we understand. And there's also not an understanding that like volume of evidence and quality of evidence are simply not the same thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like simply two very different things. And that like, if everybody in a field shares the same bias, like every single person shares the same 
preconceptions and got the same biased curriculum and trained under the same 10, 20 biased professors, um, you end up with a field where peer review doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just that, it's like on top of that, people still think that science, even if they have an understanding of like conflicts and, and violations of ethics and all that, like if, even if they know those things exist, people think that at the end of the day, the evidence speaks for itself because they believe that science is ultimately value free, that yeah. the results that you get are value free. Like they believe in the positivist notion of science that has been touted as being equivalent to science versus like this weird idealistic standard that scientists try to reach and pretend to embody but ultimately like it doesn't really exist and it doesn't actually work because science is not value free Mm -hmm. like monica just said and like people believe even with everything they know about how science gets compromised that whatever the data says is what the data says instead of what scientists understand the data is saying and what they want it to say and how that sort of is compatible with the rest of what they've already ingested that is skewed towards a specific perspective on fatness and other things generally. And like, so that's how we get this notion that fat liberation or or an anti-anti-obesity perspective is anti-science. Like that's how we get to this point where fat activism is seen as anti-science mm-hmm. because it is ultimately in opposition to what science is espousing. But if science is seen as the standard against which things are evaluated, and when I say science, obviously I'm talking about what Monica just like characterized science as, this like incredibly biased and skewed and compromised practice that is that has been sustained over years and years and years of time in which like the concept of fatness is anything but deadly and pathological is like it's made impossible mm-hmm. by how the field has sort of closed ranks around this one concept of mm-hmm. fatness. Like, then, the, then yeah, fat activism ends up being anti-science. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like there's, there's no way else to go from there because if, yeah, there's just nowhere else to go from there. Yeah. If science is anti-fat, fat people have to be anti-science <laughs> yeah. in order to survive. Yeah. yeah. Basically. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciated um, in like preparation for this episode, I read a series of, I think, Substack posts by Reagan Chastain, I believe, about, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, kind of like the history of weight loss, drugs and everything. And I mean, I, you know, this is like my total area. Like I love the sort of the epistemological battle of like, you know, what science is and what it says. But she did a really good job of showing how the studies, like the claims that are made about these drugs, like on the first on the in the first place, they rely on collapsing the notion of the notions of weight and health, you know what I mean, as being Mm -hmm. somehow equivalent. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the second place, you know, these studies are designed with like pretty small sample sizes, very short time frames, very selected populations. And when you read the language you know, that these companies are using to describe the results that they're getting from these studies, the language is is perfectly molded to fit the study designs that they've made. You know what I mean? It's like, well, like we say people mm-hmm. that these drugs work incredibly well at like lowering, you know, weight or lowering uh, HB1AC, um, you know, within the first six months. Like, and, and that's, I guess, true. But like, 
These studies rarely look beyond six months. They rarely look at what happens when people go off these medications. Like these studies have tons of uh, loss to follow up because people don't tolerate these um, these side effects that they can experience from these medications and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And um, I don't know, that was just a very interesting thing to me because I'm always really interested in how the sort of tools and methods of science are used to construct you know, kind of narratives about these things. And um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sort of losing my, my, my point here. This is not quite as, uh, as relevant as I, I thought it was going to be when I started out, no, but oh, I, I really appreciated those. It posts. Is, no, no, it is. Mm-hmm. No, it is. And just to give another example, I was going through like the major weeds and prep for this. And I, you know, set it aside for another day, but I pulled this like meta analysis that, was looking at the GLP-1 drugs like up against the other type 2 diabetes drugs because I was trying to figure out like are these substitutes that people are being given because of shortages like comparable and if so how like what's their relationship to each other and the thing that was so fucking infuriating was that this meta-analysis and many others show that the most common like increased risk factor of the GLP-1 injectables is like studied dropout participant dropout so like (laughs) it's that prevalent that it shows up as a risk factor where like one drug's category is like genital infections one is pancreatitis and then this one is study dropout like that should tell you something about the quality of the evidence and then they say things like oh you know these side effects were experienced in less than one percent of patients and it's like okay well is that like the 100 people that you originally (laughs) enrolled or the 20 that was that were left, you know what I mean? Like after, you after everyone her? dropped out, like, okay, fine. Like, and this is, this is not unique to the GLP one. No. This yeah. is pretty much every weight loss study is losing mm-hmm. a quarter or more of their participants. Yeah. Like, like way more, way more loss to follow up is tolerated in weight loss studies than almost anywhere else. Because if yep. you wanted to keep 90% of your participants, good luck publishing ever anything yeah right because the things they expect people to do are not reasonable yeah mm-hmm. yeah and the people i mean again just to just to inject i guess some some epidemiology into this discussion like it's a pro- for anyone i guess who's not familiar about like what loss to follow up is it's when people drop out of a study and that can really bias the results of a study if the people who drop out are different in some mm, way yeah. than the people who stay mm-hmm. than the people who stay in right if the people who are dropping yeah. out are you know maybe older um maybe have a specific kind of health problem, whatever, like then you're not getting any information about how these drugs really do work in these people other than that they're causing, you know, side effects or they're difficult to take or something. And people just don't want to just don't want to do it. So like that is I mean, that severely, severely compromises the validity of the findings from these from these studies. And I just kind of want to make sure that like listeners who aren't as immersed in the world of cohort studies or whatever (laughs) yeah Uh, get that (laughs) no it's so important to make clear like the ozempic revolution framing is a marketing scam Mm -hmm. yes Um, i want to go back to what abby was saying because the other thing that i want to say is that people who drop out of weight loss trials may also just not be losing weight yeah right like there are there are a lot of reasons that people would drop out of a weight loss trial that then the people who are left it looks more successful yep yeah We actually have an episode uh, that touches on that with Reagan coming out very soon. Sounds like we might have to have her back to talk about her history of weight loss drugs. Um, So let's talk about final thoughts here. 
you know, I think we've done a really good job sort of covering the full range <laughs> of the different sort of themes that wrap around this this argument, which ultimately, again, are just different representations of the same position over and over. Um, maybe Mikey and Monica, could we, would, do you have any concluding thoughts or things that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you really wanted to talk about today? I can't believe that the answer to this is no, but the answer to this is no. It's, it's a no for me, dog. Um, this is a deep cut. I have one little thing. Go for it. I just wanted to sort of say that, like, we've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the, I guess, like the narratives around these drugs and also like the ways that we just like don't we don't really know that much about what happens when people are on these things for long term. And this is a drug that is designed for the long term. It is supposed to be for the, it's supposedly designed for the long term. Yeah. And I mean that to say that like, it stops working when you stop taking it. So if you want to sustain this weight loss, you have to stay on it. Um, And thinking about that sort of uncertainty, that sort of deliberate ignorance around the long-term impact of these drugs I'm thinking about that in relation to the way that our uncertainty around these medications are one being sort of washed away by the consensus of health professionals and researchers Mm -hmm. and industry and government that have sort of embraced it and are planning to fast track approval for drugs like these in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And sort of the way that like that definitely has implications for the AAP guidelines that are going to be exposing younger and more vulnerable people to the reach of these medications. I'm so glad you brought this up. Yeah, because like we don't know what the long term. So this has obviously not been been studied in in children. Um, We don't know what the long term impacts are for adults. And yet we are entering an age where not that children haven't always been subjected to like very intense medical fat phobia and, and targeting for weight loss treatment, but now it's codified and sort of signals this new acceptance of increasingly invasive and extreme procedures in younger and younger people who we definitely do not understand are how are we don't we really do not get how they are going to be impacted by long term use of this medication, short term or long term use of this medication. And so now that's going to become increasingly accepted. And yeah, I'm really terrified about that. Yeah. yeah. The disregard feels pretty deliberate. Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, it it kind of feels like fat people dying from these drugs in the long term would be from, you know, the executive perspective, a benefit, mm-hmm. not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, really scary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's just like the the frustrating thing is so often right. Like the framework that we're working within is that what people treat as common sense and something that just everyone knows is the idea that it's better to be thin or dead Mm -hmm. (laughs) than it is to be fat. And if your framework for discussing medicalization is two sides of that, right, you're going to get the horrific discourse that we've just walked through today. And you're never going to get to the part or the framing where anyone sort of talks about, again, materially, 
what about the the sort of people who are not then buying into this ozempic utopia right like what happens to the people who don't take this medication and then you start to see all this like and this is the stuff that i left out even from this because i'm like this is just too gross and we have so many other things to contend with but another way of talking about this drug is like an explicit class argument um yeah yeah. And I have one quote from a a piece that I think is kind of like it exemplifies this. It's from a New York Post, like I think opinion piece in their unheard column um, called "The Ozempic Class War Has Begun." And th- this this author gets very lyrical with it. It's like a pretty cringe piece in general. But <laughs> basically, what he's saying is like because of the expense involved in accessing this drug off label that this is going to become visually a representation of class politics that like there will no longer be rich people held back by you know their bodies in some capacity um quote and this is yeah (laughs) this one's a lot quote whether by violent nature or scientific nurture the body is merely something to be overcome And if you've the money to opt for the latter, why wouldn't you? In the meantime, those of us doomed to remain mere humans can only watch this process unfold while the rich become superhuman, consigned to increasingly rare, quote, normal bodies that are both temples and tombs. The middle class must study this journey from the sidelines, watching on as a vast array of battered, bloated, and ruined bodies are left in the wake of a transhumanist train that goes in only one direction. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's I like, don't know what that person was trying to accomplish, but I don't think they did it. Yeah. I don't even I mean this person, like that op-ed is like very like this like they are a lifelong strength athlete or whatever. Yeah. And they're very into body optimization. Like they very clearly buy into that. They even use that term. Yeah. yeah. But like, um, yeah. This it's is the not the inability to conceptualize not taking ozempic if you had access to like the literal inability yeah to imagine a human being making that choice that really jumps out at me yeah and i think it's important to remember that that is taken as a given right and i i I love how Mm -hmm. reagan you know it says like i tell doctors they're not allowed to bring everybody knows to my evidence fight when i'm like training doctors on this but this is one of those examples where we see this kind of common sense consensus like really weaponized as being the baseline starting point and if this is going to be allowed to remain our starting point then we're always going to be looking at these bullshit fake equity questions and these framings which essentially are just variations of the same argument that the goal of society should be organizing together to make a world where fat people don't exist and i personally refuse to like allow that to be everyone's bottom line whether they agree or disagree on on ozempic that's Mm -hmm. bullshit not okay not happening not here at least (laughs) if we're (laughs) gonna you know god it's just because that really is ultimately it like we allow the terms of debate to remain in this narrow sphere because it's treated as if a kind of everyone knows framework is um is superior. And again, this is also reflective of like, and completely uncritical of the things that it reflects within broader society, culture, eugenic policy making, education. Again, like the conversation about Ozempic isn't 
about Ozempic at all. It's about the ways that anti-fatness is embedded structurally within a lot of the ways that we think of the world and what matters in the world. And that's like, unfortunately, not a super obvious fact to some people, but it's very yeah. obvious in the way that they talk about things. Yeah. I'm sitting here nodding. Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> Any final takeaways? Any affirmative sort of visions of like what an actually good take on Ozempic might be if we want to leave someone with a take. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing new about Ozempic and the only way to help fat people is to actually help them. Mm -hmm. Love that. <laughs> Cosign. I think that's the perfect <laughs> yeah, bottom line. I think as long as you are framing a population characteristic as a disease, you're going to waste a lot of time and you're going to waste a lot of money. And you're yeah. going to hurt a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. I think that's honestly, I think that's the perfect place to leave it for today. Mikey, Monica, so great to have you back again. This was like the best way to talk through some truly awful shit. I'm grateful. And again, I'm sorry for all the quotes that I pulled in today because <laughs> God. Um, but it's important. It's important to it hold things important. up to ridicule. Yeah, agree. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. And boy, are these people showing whole ass, right? <laughs> Nonstop parade. Um, if you want to follow on cheeks on cheeks, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you want to follow Mikey, uh, she is at Marcazel on Twitter, and Monica is at Fatty MPH. Again, patrons. Thank you so much for your support. We're entirely listener funded and couldn't do any of this without you. Mikey and Monica, thank you so much for joining us again. So nice. Thank yes. you. It was so fun. Even the terrible subject matter, though. <laughs> it, it, was, it was still fun. Thank goodness. Um, and listeners, if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, order a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore, or request it from your local library, and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. We'll catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. <laughs>